0: So I remember very clearly one of my lecturers at Oxford doing a course on the Old Testament and he finished the course by saying, there is no single uh, coherent threat to the Old Testament. even monotheism is contradicted at points. So you know so one can see with historical criticism, you really are left continually, with fragments, and no sense of uh, coherence or unity of Scripture as
1: a whole. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host. Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine, and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. As Christians, we treat the Bible, and we should treat the Bible, as a unitary whole. We assume so often the inspiration of the Bible, that God has breathed out this word through the human authors and we even turn to the New Testament to support that belief. However, so often when we read the Bible, when we interpret the Bible, when we see the Bible function in the life of the church, we sometimes forget that it's a unitary whole. Sometimes we even act as if it's not a unitary whole, as if, say, the two Testaments Uh, are to be split apart or as if even God himself is a different type of God in one testament uh, to the next. And this raises a difficult question, maybe a convicting question for us as Christians. How should we not only view the Bible uh, doctrinally, but how should we treat the Bible in terms of uh, interpreting the scriptures, even preaching the scriptures, and in terms of the application of the Scriptures. This is a difficult issue to address because it demands that our, uh, our belief in Scripture be consistent with the way we use Scripture. And more often than not, uh, unfortunately, sometimes we are not always consistent in the relationship between those two. Well, I am uh, really delighted to have Craig Bartholomew on the Credo Podcast to address issues like this, uh, because he's written so much on hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, uh, and how hermeneutics relates to theology and to how we understand the canon as a whole. For those of you who don't know Craig, uh, many of you will know him from his writings, books like The Drama of Scripture— uh, introducing biblical hermeneutics. He also has a, a few more th- that are coming out with Erdman's uh, God to Acts, The Significance of Sinai, God to Acts in History, The Significance of Sinai. And he also has a book on the doctrine of creation releasing uh, soon enough. Uh, he is the Kirby Lang, uh, he's the director of the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics and senior research fellow at Tyndale House, Cambridge. Craig, it really is Uh, a joy to have you on the podcast. Uh,
0: Thank you very much. And uh, uh, do you want me to call you Matthew or Dr. Barrett?
2: Uh, Matthew's just fine.
0: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) thanks.
2: (laughs) Well, Craig, uh, as we begin, uh, maybe we should start with uh, not just what the Bible is, but uh, our own context, which poses some significant challenges to how our our own uh, historical understanding of what the Bible is. Uh, for example, on the one hand, as Protestants, uh, even uh, those who would claim a label like evangelical will argue that, uh, well, the, the Bible is not uh, atomized parts that are uh, to be segregated from one another, but there is actually a unity to Scripture, one that uh, is not only a, a a literary feature, but one that has to do with the the one primary divine author himself, and mm-hmm. yet at the same time we face challenges from, say, historical criticism and more recently postmodernism uh, mm-hmm. towards that very unity that we are adhering to. Maybe you mm-hmm. could paint the the context and, and the challenges that we live in today. What what are some of the challenges that say something like historical criticism, or on the other hand, postmodernism posed to the unity of the Bible?
0: Yeah, so thank you, Matthew. This is an extremely important question, and you've articulated it very well and very clearly. So I think, uh, you know, to be an evangelical, and both of us are committed evangelicals, is to confess that Scripture is the Word of God and that the primary author of Scripture is God, and that the actual authors are the secondary authors, but that Scripture is inspired so that the Holy Spirit oversaw the production of Scripture, so that with Augustine we can say what Scripture says, God says. And I think as you have uh, indicated, this commits us to a very strong uh, doctrine of the unity of Scripture. In other words, you know, God speaks in a way that is unified and coherent, and he doesn't say one thing in one place and a totally different thing in a different place. So in my opinion, to be an evangelical is to be deeply committed to the unity of Scripture and the coherence of its message in its totality uh, so that we can trust it as God's written word. And I I think you are right that the unity of of Scripture has come under tremendous pressure uh, in the last few hundred years, really. So uh, now we need to be careful here, because when we speak about historical criticism and postmodernism, it's not that they haven't provided us with any gifts So in my opinion, both of those movements have insights that we need to be aware of. So I don't want to just paint them entirely as the devil and say they're all bad. But there can be no doubt, I think, that both historical criticism and postmodernism have been tremendously damaging in terms of the unity of Scripture So historical criticism uh, generally, uh, and when I went to Oxford University, the way I was taught, one was inducted into the main methods of historical criticism, which are source criticism, form criticism, tradition criticism, and redaction criticism. And then one one was never taught where these came from. They were just presented as though this is the, scientific way to read the Bible. And so, for example, with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, one was taught in detail how to identify the uh, apparent sources of the Pentateuch, J, E, D, and P. And of course, one one of the criteria for identifying these sources is contradictions and different theologies, different views of God, and so on and so forth. So with historical criticism, the legacy is of a fragmentable Bible and almost an impossible job to try and put all the pieces back together or to demonstrate coherence. So I remember very clearly one of my lecturers at Oxford Doing a course on the Old Testament, and he finished the course by saying there is no single uh, coherent thread to the Old Testament. Even monotheism is contradicted at points. Mm. So, you know, so one can see with historical criticism, you really are left continually with fragments and no sense of the coherence or unity of scripture as a whole. And then postmodernism has undermined the very possibility of truth. So it it has presented, I mean, postmodernism in some ways has really challenged historical criticism, but it's brought its own uh, challenges to any sense of unity of scripture because uh, that unity, if it exists, is thought to be a construct of the reader and to be ideologically uh, damaging. And the reading scripture as the true story of the whole world, for example, as a meta-narrative, is thought to be intrinsically ideological, coercive, oppressive, power-seeking, and therefore very damaging. So both of these movements brought enormous challenges to the evangelical confession of the unity of Scripture.
2: Now, Craig, when we talk about the unity of Scripture itself and your own personal story there, I I really appreciate you sharing that because it it does demonstrate that we're not just talking in theory uh, here. Um, You know, sometimes this is the impression, you know, that this is just, you know, academics, and, and this is just in theory, but, but your, your personal story demonstrates that, no, this, this has real implications, real consequences for how you read the Bible itself. Now, when we talk about the unity of the Bible in, in contrast to uh, whether it's uh, historical criticism or postmodernism, in, in contrast to both of those types of, of approaches, uh, you've argued that, well, no, there, there is a, a unity scripture that that's not for example just the the construct of the reader but but you've argued that this unity is inherent to scripture and uh where do we see it well it it centers in large part on jesus christ himself can can you explain uh, because i think this is such an important point for christians to understand how is the unity say between the testaments how is that unity how does it oscillate on the person and work of jesus christ
0: yes so thank you so uh, just to reinforce the the pressure towards uh, disunity uh, has enormous practical consequences and so one could give example after example of that so listeners should not underestimate Uh, the impact of historical criticism and postmodernism. And I'll just give one example before I move on to uh, Christ as the center of Scripture. So recently I was doing some work on Genesis chapter 2 and Eden and the doctrine of creation. And, you know, some of our best scholars argue uh, as historical critics that Eden is never again mentioned or picked up in the whole of the Bible. So now that is demonstrably not the case. And uh, one can show very clearly that it is not the case, but that's the kind of dilemma that you are faced with from historical critics. So, you know, before you can even get out of Genesis 2, let alone start to connect the whole of scripture, you're faced with this kind of thing. Another example would be, that many historical critics argue that the image of God is never again really picked up in the Old Testament, uh, maybe once or twice. So we can't really use it to understand what it means to be human. Again, I think this is demonstrably false. But they're there are good examples of just how uh you know historical criticism or postmodernism prevent you from even getting out of the starting blocks in terms of capturing Scripture in its totality, so it captures us in our totality.
2: Now, those examples that that you just gave uh, concerning, uh, say, whether it's image or Eden and creation, uh, to to look at those and to say, well, once you see them uh, described there in in Genesis, they just disappear as the canon progresses— doesn't that assume a, a certain type of, of uh, well? Given how you've described it, I, I would I would agree with you. I, I think it it describes a certain type of biblical theology that uh, it fails to pay attention to maybe some of the the uh, the, uh, the the clues that that then uh, future authors, whether it's uh, books that, you know still within the Pentateuch or or maybe the prophets themselves or, or Jesus himself, the way that they use maybe they don't use uh, the exact terminology, but the way that they capitalize on these concepts, uh, uh, even types, in light of the anti-type uh, who is Christ himself. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you, Maybe you want to elaborate on that.
0: Yes. So uh, I do think, you know, for example, it, it's woefully inadequate, to which is, it seems to me often to be the approach to simply say, well, the word image as a description of the human person hardly uh, ever occurs again in the Old Testament. Now, there are cases where it occurs, but it doesn't occur very much. But, of course, the theology of of the image of God or the notion that humans are created uh, in some way in the likeness of the living God, uh, I would argue that can be found all over the place. In, the most interesting ways. So in my recent work that I've been doing on Sinai, for example, Exodus 19 to 24, which includes the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, you know, if you have a close look at what's going on in the Decalogue, it becomes very clear that these are laws that are designed to make humans like God. So this would be a place where the image theology is in full and powerful operation without the word image actually being used. So so I think, uh, Matthew, you and I are in absolute agreement in this regard.
2: Mm. You know, I, I can't help. You, you've used uh, this example of image, and uh, it, it's to our listeners. Uh, I, I hope our listeners understand that well, this is just one example. Uh, there, there are so many other examples that pervade uh, pervade the Old Testament, and then are then trans transition into the New Testament. Um, when we come to say Christ Himself. Uh, in in say the Gospels, we, we we think of that famous passage in Luke twenty four, where uh, Christ after his resurrection, Christ is is uh, opening the minds of of uh, his listeners on the Emmaus road to understand how all the scriptures uh, speak of him. That can sound, especially in light of of, of so many of the ways that we. Just default to approaching Scripture today—that can sound shocking. Um, But, but Craig, uh, maybe you can you can uh, comment on this. Uh, Why why is Christ right? (laughs) Why is he Why is he actually not? uh, You know, this isn't some uh, invention that's that's you know the agenda of his own person. But but this is actually uh, true from the beginning of Eden all the way uh, in, in the first Adam to the last Adam, Christ.
0: Uh, Yes, so I I think that is true. And uh, so, you know, in in my opinion, and and I think this is simply orthodox evangelical theology, but uh, Christ is the center of scripture. So, uh, you know, uh, the language that the New Testament, the, the first three gospels in particular uses, is the language of the kingdom. And so uh, Christ is the king, and he uh, brings the kingdom, and he invites people to enter into the kingdom, and then uh, he opens up this time between the coming of the kingdom and its final consummation when he will return. So the the, the Christ, what I call, some people don't like it, but I, I find it useful language, so, the Christ event is the, the very heart of Scripture, and it is also the heart of the history of the world, of the creation. It is that around which everything turns. And so, in Christ, God has intervened to retrieve and recover His purposes for His creation and to lead it towards the destiny which He always intended for it. So, in my opinion, we cannot make too much of Christ and of what God has done in Him, in God's purposes for His creation. And so, I think what uh, once one starts to see that, then you you know it it pushes one into asking, well, how does Christ? fulfill the Old Testament. So that's one of the strong motifs that you find in the Gospels, that in Christ, uh, the forward look of the Old Testament has come to fulfillment in an unexpected and extraordinary fashion. And I think kingdom is a very good clue in that regard. And then, so I think one way of opening up the unity of the Bible is to start with this focus on Christ, and, and but that pushes one into the rest of the biblical storyline. So, you cannot fully understand Christ, I don't think, without taking the narrative of the Old Testament into account. And then I think the Christ event itself is so powerful and huge that it casts its light in all directions, including back over the Old Testament. So I think you can't fully understand the Old Testament apart from the light of Christ as well. Mm. And so what this would push me towards is that one way of getting at the unity of the Bible, I think there are many ways, but one way is through thinking of the Bible in Eugene Peterson's word as a grand, sprawling, capacious meta-narrative, which tells the true story of the world. Now, when I use the word meta-narrative or story, I'm not saying unhistorical because it's uh, at the heart of evangelical faith that God has acted in history and that the historical narratives of the Bible are reliable reports of what God has done. But narrative or meta-narrative gets at the fact that the Bible as a whole has the shape of the true story of the whole world from creation to new creation from, as Leslie Newbigin would say, the garden to the city. But we must never forget at the center of that story is Christ.
2: Now, Craig, as you're desc- describing and, and really identifying Christ at the center of this story, uh, this this uh, this raises uh, another issue, uh, and, and that is eschatology. Um, um, if we're going to, uh, and, and I appreciate how you you helpfully qualified yourself to say, you know, when when we're using as evangelicals, we use the word words like grand or meta narrative. Uh, we're we're trying to capture this christological unity to, to the whole Bible to the whole story but we're not doing so apart from history itself and so uh history there, there this unity we're, we're describing is characteristic of history that that raises the issue though of eschatology uh you know Christians uh, sometimes scholars tend to uh, limit eschatology to, you know, end time views and, and end time positions and, and millennial discussions. And, and there's a, a, a place for those. But uh, we can also think of eschatology um, in, in terms of just what the whole Bible is and the story that God unfolds. Uh, maybe you can help us here. How, how does, use the, the phrase the Christ event, how does the Christ event uh, how how is it eschatological, a- and and especially in terms of the kingdom?
0: Yeah, yeah. So thank you. I mean, th- this is a tremendously important distinction. So, uh, and you know, when I was converted as a teenager in South Africa, and Christ became this overwhelming reality in my life, I, I was in church contexts where eschatology was always thought of, if the word was used, it wasn't always used, but there was a lot of discussion on, you know, the signs of the second coming of Christ and uh, whether, we, you know, how close we were to that second coming and so on and so forth. Now, in my opinion, there is uh, a place for such discussions. But what, what I later learned was that the New Testament, when it speaks about the last days, it does. it's not referring to, you know, is it five minutes to midnight or three minutes to midnight or two minutes, and is what is going on in China or Europe a sign of that? When the New Testament speaks about the last days, it says that it uses the language of kingdom. And the Old Testament is looking forward to a time when God will act decisively in history to eradicate sin from the universe and push his kingdom and lead the creation to its destiny. And this is the remarkable thing about the Gospels. They tell us that if Christ has come, then the king is already present in his creation. So we are in the last days already. Uh, So the kingdom has come. But unlike Jewish eschatology, what the New Testament does is is say uh, Christ has come and so the eschaton is upon us. We are living in the period of the last days. But that period opens out into the period of mission in which the news of Christ is to be spread to all nations until he will come again to finally consummate his kingdom. So th- this, I think, is tremendously important framework, uh, however important discussions are about how close we are to the second coming of Christ. The eschatology of the Bible is that in Christ the kingdom has come, and then, of course, we are taught to pray your kingdom come. So we're living in the last days between the coming of the king, and the final consummation of his kingdom.
2: That certainly changes how we think of history. Uh, Eschatology uh, is something that, uh, as you just mentioned, uh, it's something that the New Testament describes as here and now. On the one hand, the the last days have come. Uh, You think of Mm. Jesus announcing uh, that the kingdom is at hand, and and yet uh, believers are taught by Jesus himself to to pray God's kingdom come. Mm. Uh so there's a uh an already not yet dimension to this. Uh mm. it's it's progressing and 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 there's uh in what is to come, uh, there there is great uh a grounding there for our hope as believers. Now all of this assumes as we've mentioned at the beginning, all of this assumes that unity to to history itself we maybe we could call it an eschatological unity to history uh that that stems from uh what god himself has said uh in in the scriptures um you make an interesting uh and i think um a a, a very clarifying uh comment though uh it, it, this is this comes from Uh, your book on hermeneutics, uh, introducing biblical hermeneutics. And you make the point, uh, building off of someone like Alvin Plantica, you make the point that uh, the unity that we see in Scripture is basic. It's foundational Christian belief. And so when we think about this unity, well, evidence for this belief is not required before someone is warranted in taking this belief as foundational and then working from that belief to, to really understanding the whole of the Bible and, and even its implications for faith and practice. Uh, what do you mean by this exactly, and, and why is this? I, I assume that for many of our listeners, this may be uh, counterintuitive, but, but why would you argue that this is actually the way, not only the way we, we typically approach the Bible, but the way uh, we should approach the Bible?
0: Uh, yes, so uh, th- this is tremendously important. And, you know, so le- let me just make a few points in this regard. The, the, first of all, this will resonate, I think, with the experience of Christians. So I-, I think what happens to a person when they are born again, when they are converted uh, through the work of the Spirit, that they come alive to God who has come to them in Christ. And that is always accompanied by a trust in Scripture as the place where they can truly hear God speaking. So I I think if we think about conversion, and I think if our listeners think about uh, their experience of conversion, that seems to me what happens. You get this double thing, openness to God and a trust that Scripture is reliable and that's where we can hear God speak to us in a way that we can trust fully. Now, what uh, someone like Elvin Plantinga has done is given that uh, philosophical flesh or backing and, and I think Plantinga is absolutely right. So we don't have to solve all the challenges of historical criticism, and some of them are very, very difficult. So, you know, that's why I said earlier, we, we don't just write off all historical criticism as irrelevant. It's raised many difficult issues. It's fingered data of scripture that we have to attend to. But if we were to let historical criticism take the lead, we would feel we have to solve all these challenges first before we can trust that Scripture is unified. Now, what Plantinger has shown is that you can make a very good place, uh, case philosophically that you can assume the unity of Scripture and work on that basis without having to assemble evidence for that belief. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't any evidence, nor does it mean that arguments for the unity of Scripture are not valuable. They are. But what Plantinga is saying, and I think this is correct, is that we arrive at the conviction that Scripture is reliable and unified from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and that's sufficient. So these other things are helpful, but they're not essential.
2: Mm. I can't help but think of uh, John Calvin and uh, his institutes, uh, not just his institutes, of course, but his his, uh, commentaries and his sermons, where this becomes a major pillar in how he approaches the text, how he interprets the text, exegetes the text, and how he preaches the text—that um, uh, this at uh, times he uses different language, uh, where he'll talk about the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, but he always uh, uh, pairs that with the this the, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, just as you are referring to. Uh, it's, it it does change the way that we we think of uh, we think of the text, so that uh, like you said, yes, there's evidence. But uh, it's not necessarily um, required before uh, we, we understand and, and really embark on on the journey, the story that God himself takes us on. Maybe, we, Craig, we could transition uh, as we sort of turn the corner here. Uh, maybe we could transition just for a minute and also uh, discuss not just uh, the unity of the text, Uh, And not just, uh, you know, how how faith and the spirit play into this, but uh, also the rule of faith. Uh, Because whenever we are reading through the text, uh, whether it's exegeting a particular passage, whether it's interpreting the whole story uh, with so many of the themes that you've mentioned, creation, image, kingdom, and so on. Well, whenever we do that, uh, sometimes Christians think, well, I need to put away theology. I need to put away doctrine. Uh, I need to, to, to really uh, come to the text as neutral as possible. But, but you've made a, a different argument. You've stressed that uh, the rule of faith is actually very important. Maybe you could define what is the rule of faith for our listeners who don't know, and, and how does that act as a, a type of hermeneutical key uh, that, that really assists us Uh, as we uh, come to the story of the Bible?
0: Yes, so that's an excellent question. So there is a whole history in the early church of the rule of faith, and uh, probably the easiest way to say it is that the rule of faith is a summary, a very, very abbreviated summary of Christian uh, belief. So an example that readers may be familiar with would be something, although this is a bit more developed, like the Apostles' Creed, uh, for example. But in the early church, a rule of faith was often a much shorter summary of the heart of Christian belief. And uh, so the uh, I think, Matthew, this is a very, very important question. So, uh, and just to backtrack a little bit, You know, what I'm arguing for is that not only are, if I can use the expression, ordinary believers, in other words, non-academics, justified in assuming the unity of Scripture and approaching it as God's reliable word for us, but so too is the biblical scholar. Mm. So... You know, people sometimes think, oh, well, that's how we read it in the church. But when it comes to the academy, you can't approach it like that. And this is precisely what Elvin Plantinger is arguing against, that the academic is just as justified as assuming the unity of Scripture and working academically with it in that ethos, as is the ordinary believer who's not a biblical scholar.
1: Mm.
0: So so it goes, that's why this is so important. And uh, how we approach Scripture is absolutely crucial. So historical criticism and much of the modern world would say you can only approach Scripture to try and discern its truth if you bracket out your belief in Christ, your faith, uh, prayer, Uh, dependence upon God, and if you approach it in an objective, modern, scientific way. Now, I I think this is uh, completely incorrect, and that because of the nature of Scripture, we need to approach it prayerfully uh, with uh, um, a distrust in ourselves. In other words, a hermeneutic of suspicion towards ourselves and a hermeneutic of trust towards scripture as God's authoritative word. And so, and then there there is this interesting question, which you've raised of the relationship between uh, short statements of faith or doctrine and scripture. Now it's scripture that is finally infallible, not, uh, you know, the Westminster Catechism or the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church. But uh, the church is always, you know, we we don't read scripture just as individuals. We read it as part of the one Catholic and apostolic church. So the universal church through time and and in the present. So we read scripture communally, and those uh, uh, statements of faith are, things that the church has articulated to help people get a grip on the essentials of their faith. And so a thing that was a revelation to me, uh, because as an evangelical, one tends to think you start with Scripture and then you develop doctrine from Scripture. Now that is true, but no less than Calvin wrote his Institutes To help us read scripture better, Mm. so and that to me is tremendously instructive. That just as there is a move from scripture to doctrine, you know, good doctrine provides a kind of lens through which to read scripture, and so so the move has to go both ways. But certainly, healthy theology, healthy doctrine is an indispensable thing when it comes. To the proper reading of Scripture.
2: So well said, Craig. Uh, that last, uh, what you just said there a minute ago, especially with Calvin, uh, that is so important. Uh, we, we, you're right. We tend to think of the hermeneutical process in terms of moving from Scripture or exegesis and then eventually getting to doctrine and uh there is a sense like you said there is a sense in which we should move from scripture to doctrine uh we our our doctrines should be scriptural they should be based on what god has said um and yet at the same time uh we we so often fail to realize, well, that's only half of, we, we haven't finished the race. Uh, it should move the other direction as well so that uh, our, our doctrines should then uh, assist us even in form and help us be hermeneutical aids uh, to interpret uh, interpret the text in the way that it should be interpreted. Uh, this is a reminder of why we even have this podcast uh, to begin with that uh, mm-hmm. doctrine actually does matter and it's not just something that matters uh, you know for Christians or pastors or even scholars in, in terms of just sounding Orthodox or or checking off those doctrinal tenets. But it matters uh, far more significantly for the way we actually approach the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. Craig, this mm-hmm. has been uh, such a fruitful conversation uh, to, to our listeners. I would say if you've, if you've never read Craig Bartholomew's, any of his books, I would encourage you go pick up uh, a book like The Drama of Scripture, or uh, pick up, uh, if you're feeling brave and, and you want to yeah. dive into the deep end, pick up his book, Introducing Biblical Hermeneutics, a Comprehensive Framework for Hearing God in Scripture. Uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Craig has written so many other books on the wisdom literature, uh, even on preaching itself. Uh, so all that to say, there is uh, th- there are riches here for our, our listeners to dig up And I think you will find in Craig a a very helpful ally uh, to to help you interpret the Bible. Craig, it's been a delight. Thank you for coming on the Credo podcast. No,
0: thank you, Matthew. And uh, may the the podcast prosper.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.